Our guest speaker this morning is a rabbi of international renown who has come from the East to bring us this Shabbat message. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I know. I, I, I suffer from the same ailment. Uh, as the words are coming out, I'm going, you have the power to rebuke this, and it just doesn't happen. Well, there are days I feel like the Rodney Dangerfield of rabbis. So I learned something back east this last trip. Last few times I saw my grandson, he really wasn't too aware of the things going around, going on around him. He was, you know, one year old and we had a good time, but there was really no interaction. This last time, it was really a special time for me. I, he would wake up early, I was already up. <clears throat> and uh, he really likes raisins and so do I. And so I would bring raisins and raisin bread into the room and we'd sit there and eat raisin bread toast. And I would read, he would go to his bookshelf and pull out a, a book for me to read to him. And I, I really had some really excellent alone time with him, just, just me and him enjoying one another. He's going to remember me as Rabbi Rosen, Raisin Bread, <laughs> or the Raisin Bread Man, or something along those lines. And then I, you know, the day before I was supposed to leave at nighttime, I, I prayed over him and said goodbye to him. He didn't really understand, obviously. <clears throat> and that morning I left early. And my son calls me while I'm on the road and he says, uh, so Luke got up this morning and he went to your room where you were staying and started asking, Saba? He's looking for me. Or the raisin bread. I'm not sure which one it, it was. It could have been either. And Debbie said, well, Saba had to go home. And, oh, man. Um, you know, just tear out a, a guy's heart. I don't care how tough you are or how hard you are. Something like that happens. And if it doesn't fetch a briny drop, you ain't got no soul. It was one of those extraordinary experiences. So I'll be going back in spring and again in fall. So bye-bye, I'll just say that now. <laughs> so it doesn't come as a surprise. Um, it was an extraordinary time and one I will always remember. Title of this message is, I Desire Mercy not sacrifice. <clears throat> the last time I spoke here, about a decade ago, I told a tale of two trees, the tree of life, which imparted life and peace to a man, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which when partaken of brought death and great sorrow. 
The knowledge of good and evil in and of itself is not bad. In fact, after the fall, much of God's Torah concerns itself with what God considers to be good and what he considers to be evil. So that knowledge in and of itself is not bad. We try to live our lives according to that knowledge. But a knowledge of good and evil does not impart the ability to do good and refrain from evil. It merely presents us with a choice. Unfortunately, Adam chose death and cursing and was then given another choice by God. He could continue on that path or return to the path of life and blessing. God constantly giving us choices. The Pharisees of the first century were not all typical of the people we read about in the New Covenant. Not all were evil. They were well versed in the knowledge of good and evil. Torah. Yeshua speaks to their knowledge of good and evil. John chapter 9 verse 4. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But since you claim you see, your guilt remains. In other words, since you say you know, you're guilty. And we've all had these conversations with somebody. You're instructing them in how to do something and the words, and especially this, this is especially true for teenagers. Every time you tell them to do, I know. Well, if you know, why are you doing it wrong? <laughs> this is the nature of the conversation that Yeshua is having. Since you say you know, your sin remains. If you didn't know, you wouldn't be guilty. Knowledge is accompanied by responsibility. If you know to do good and you do not, that's bad. Once innocence is lost, it cannot be restored. Adam was innocent in the garden. He wasn't sinless. He was innocent. But once that innocent was lost, so was the garden. <clears throat> the knowledge of good and evil by itself has one further deficiency. Laws address only the outward behavior of a person. And you see this every single day if you drive, when you're on the highway. People are doing 65 and as soon as they see a cop, they're doing 55. The law only addresses the outward behavior. That's still, that guy still wants to do 65. And as soon as the cop passes, he does. They have absolutely no, laws have no effect on the intent of a person's heart. Yeshua tells us in Matthew 5 verses 17 through 20 that our righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They know the law, but a knowledge of good and evil is not enough to produce leftahor, a clean heart. It doesn't change the intents of the heart. It has only the ability to change the outward behavior of someone. 
What, what Yeshua is telling us is you must go beyond a knowledge of good and evil. You have to seek left to whore that your knowledge of good and evil would circumcise your heart and would desire to be pure and holy. As an example, he gives us examples of this all the time. You know, outside you are a whitewashed sepulcher and inside you're full of death and corruption. He gives us another example. Praying, for instance, is not bad. We're commanded to pray. But if I pray with the intent of being seen by men and considered righteous by men, I get that. That is given to me. I am now seen as righteous before men, but no righteousness from God is imparted to me. For the intent of my heart was to be seen by men, and I got that. They have already received their reward, Yeshua says. The Torah points to the way. Yeshua is the way, and there is a huge difference. The way, the truth, the life accompanies us on our journey to make course corrections. He doesn't just set us out on the path, point to the path and say, go negotiate this path. He follows us. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 20 and 21. When the Lord gives us the bread of oppression, now understand, it's the Lord giving the bread of oppression. It's not hasatan. It's the Lord giving us this, because that happens sometimes. In fact, that happens a lot. When we do poorly, God afflicts us to straighten us back out, to bring us back to the right path. And when the Lord gives us that bread of affliction, the word says, Hamoreh, the teacher. Hamoreh HaTzedakah, the teacher of righteousness, will appear behind us, and he whispers in our ear, read Isaiah 30. And he will tell us when we wish to turn to the left or the right, which is the right path. As believers, we have all experienced this. We have a quandary, we're not sure which way to go, what to do, and we hear a small still voice behind us. This is the way, walk in it. Happens quite frequently. Many of my people believe that it was the word of the Lord, Hamemra Hashem, which John tells us was Yeshua, the Mashiach. That he was the one who spoke to Adam in the garden, whose voice walked on the wind of the day, as it states in Hebrew. Many of my people believe that it was Mashiach, the word of the Lord, who appeared to Moshe on Sinai, and spoke the ten words. I'm one of those. I agree with that. Every manifestation of God to man that we could identify was either a pre-incarnation of Yeshua or subsequent to Yeshua's incarnation. To me, Yeshua affirms this in John chapter 5, verse 46. If you had believed Moshe, you would believe me, for he spoke of me. He was the one who spoke with Moses. 
from the midst of the cloud of glory that settled down. Moses entered that cloud. In one of the greatest revelations of God in the, all of scripture. God declares he is our father and every father wants a child who will love and trust him. He tries to teach the child the right way that he might avoid experiencing the pain of the wrong way. The motive of a good father is not to control every action of his child, to make turn his child into a puppet. He tries to guide the child through reason, that he might awaken in the child the desire to follow the, the path of righteousness, the straight path that leads to light. When I was back east, I found some sparklers when I was packing up to bring some stuff to David. And I found these sparklers, and so I brought them out because I know how much I loved the first time I, I saw a sparkler. It was absolutely fascinating. And we went out one night, and there we are lighting the sparklers, and Luke is like, he, he, he was just mesmerized by this white, hot flame and the sparks that were coming off, and frankly, so was I, so we had another point of relating. And as he's, you know, I gave him to hold it by the, the tail, and he does every, what everybody does. He starts moving it around because the eye, you know, it continues to see the trail. And as he's doing this, you can see the left hand almost automatically. It's, it's, it's involuntary, it seemed. It's going up to touch the white hot end of the sparkler which is burning at about half the temperature of the surface of the sun. It's magnesium. It burns at about 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, had he touched that, he would have received permanent damage. The nerve endings could be burnt, and he would not have sensitivity in that finger. And so I, I, I leaned over and I said, Luke, don't touch that. It's really hot, and it's really going to hurt. And so he brought his finger down for about three seconds. And then the finger starts to rise by itself, levitating. <laughs> Drawn to touch that white hot end. And I said, Luke, really hot. It's going to burn you and it's going to hurt. Finger comes down. And then the, the sparkler burns down and it starts to glow bright red, and then it starts to dim. And as it dims, once again, the finger comes up. And this time I didn't say anything because now there won't be permanent damage. There'll just be a blister. It'll hurt. And if you don't learn by reason, pain is a really good teacher. So I was going to let him touch it if he wanted to, and he got, he got closer to it, and I guess he felt the heat. And he brought his finger down by himself, and I said, thank you, Lord. He's got a brain. He can think. And I was rejoicing at, at this little milestone. Again, he was going to learn one way or t'other. He was either going to learn by listening to me and avoid the pain, 
of experience or he was going to touch it and then let the crying begin. Yeshua tried to teach us a lot when he walked this earth. One of the games my people play, the rabbis of, of my people play, is how to reduce the Torah to the least amount of words, something no preacher has ever been able to accomplish. You will understand this more over the course of the next seven hours of this sermon. And some of the younger ones went, oh, God. When Yeshua was asked, which is the greatest of all the commandments, in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, he quotes the Shema and the Vahata. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this. You will love your neighbor as yourself. He taught us that the entirety of Torah was the command to love. The first four commandments teach us how to love and honor God. And the last six teach us how to love and honor others of our species. For an example, the Torah teaches the farmer how to love the traveler. He may never meet this person, but he teaches the, the farmer how to show love to the man who's traveling. He has to leave the corners of his field unharvested so that the traveler can have a nash, something to eat on the way to where he's going. It can be like a, a, a small return to Gan Eden where he reaps what he doesn't sow where he just reaches up and plucks food from the tree. Mark chapter 11, verse 13. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for the figs. And Yeshua gets really angry. And he curses the tree so that it doesn't bring forth any more fruit. Now, this passage has been misunderstood by many people. And the, the explanations are quite imaginative. But it relates back to the Torah, as everything Yeshua did. He didn't end the Torah. I have not come to discard it, to destroy the Torah, but to fulfill it. And he fulfills the Torah and the teachings of Torah in this particular passage. It was not the season for figs. So why is Yeshua so angry? Was he just having a bad day? Why is he so angry that he didn't find any figs on it? Because he was expecting to find figs from the last harvest, not from this harvest. That farmer should have left figs on that tree for the traveler, just like Yeshua. That farmer did not leave the corners unharvested. He gathered every bit of fruit so he could sell it at market. And Yeshua curses the tree for the sake of this man. 
the farmer who had forgotten who provided for that crop to grow, where the true source of any wealth he had resided, that was God. And not following his instructions to leave that tree alone for the traveler, even what he had was taken from him, and that tree never again bore fruit. During his life here, Yeshua was the rabbi, the teacher. He taught us truth. And the truth is love is the greatest of the commandments. And then he reveals the responsibility of the student in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Burnt offerings do not bring life. They cover death. There is a profound and essential difference between the two. In fact, the word atonement in Hebrew, for those who are new here, is kippur, kippura, which literally means covering. It's used to describe the covering for the ark, where the winged chruvim, where God would appear in the smoke from the altar of incense, that's called uh, kippurah, the covering of the ark. Burnt offerings just cover the sin. They don't bring life. Learned Jews in the first century understood this. There's a humorous little anecdote in, in Talmud, one of the uh, Agadot, one of the stories that teach a lesson. And there was this uh, crazy nudnik, this, this obnoxious man. And in an effort to learn the Torah quickly and distill it down to its essence, he come, there was two major schools in first century of Jewish thought. One was started by Rabbi Shammai, and the other one was started by Rabbi Hillel. Shammai was known as a, a harsh man. Um, Hillel was known as one who shows more mercy. And this man comes to Shammai, and he says, uh, I want you to teach me the Torah while I stand on one foot. In other words, give me the Reader's Digest version. So Shammai picks up a measuring rod, which would amount to, in our day, a yardstick, and slaps him upside the head, <laughs> Just, and chases him out of the school. He then goes to Hillel, hoping to not get hit again. And he says to Rabbi Hillel, teach me the Torah while I stand on one foot. Hillel teaches him this. Try to note the similarity between what Hillel says and he lived before Yeshua and what Yeshua says. That which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow man. That is the whole of Torah. All the rest is commentary. Zil ugamar. Now go and learn it. The concept of those who seek God, who truly seek God, they all come away with the same understanding. It's love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like unto the first. Love each other. In our day, a very famous and remarkably intelligent rabbi, 
he was the rabbi, the chief rabbi of the, the Lubavitcher, Rabbi Schneerson. Not a believer. But he concluded this, the world does not need more intelligent people. And he was certainly intelligent. He spoke 18 languages. Photographic memory. Remarkable man, remarkable intellect. And he said the world doesn't need more intelligent people, but more compassionate people, people who love, people who are kind. That is followed by a neurobiologist by the name of Richard Davidson who writes, the foundation of a healthy brain is kindness. Now neither of these men are believers, but truth is truth irrespective of who states it. He writes that kindness is an essential, an essential ingredient of intelligence. And he explains that kindness requires the ability to not think only about ourselves, but about others as well. Paul would certainly agree with both these men. Second Timothy chapter three, verse one. Paul describes the end of days. But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. And then he tells us why in verses two through five. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. Understand, he's speaking about believers here who have an appearance of godliness, but that appearance is superficial. It doesn't change who they are. It doesn't accomplish what the knowledge of good and evil is supposed to accomplish. It doesn't change them. The intents of the heart remain impure. And Paul instructs us, avoid them. Don't have anything to do with them. No good fruit will come from this. Paul then describes their vanity in verse 7. Always learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Two greatest commandments. As Solomon, they gave their hearts to accumulate knowledge and wisdom and all they found was sorrow and madness. Now I was taught the law from the time, I don't know, even before I started in the Cheder. I know the law, but I rarely teach on it. I wouldn't say never but I rarely teach on the law, the knowledge of good and evil. I seek to entice others to partake of the tree of life, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To enter into the light that exists just on the other side of darkness, for there is where the Lord resides. I do this because of personal experience 
studying only the knowledge of good and evil, did not bring me closer to God. In fact, it chased me away. There was sorrow. But I always believed that there was a God. And I sought him in diligence. And when I beheld him, the glory of that presence, that created the clean heart. And it caused me to desire to want to walk in the path of righteousness. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? It's not external coercion at that point. It's an internal passion. The sons of God, the Elohim, are used to describe both angelic and human beings. And they are unique in all of creation. They alone are given the ability to choose. Now I know some say that angels don't have any self-determination that they can't choose. Well, that is empirically false. Satan and a third of the angels that exist in heaven choose to walk away from God. So there's obviously a choice that is available to them. God is omnipotent, as it, the word is used in theology, all-powerful. It relates to the term El Shaddai, God Almighty. He laid the heavens out like a curtain and set each of the heavenly bodies in their proper course. They don't ask why. They just follow the laws that God gave them that govern the, the behavior of these heavenly bodies. Some men are of such an ilk. Abraham is called the father of the faithful for his unquestioned faith in obedience, when God commanded him to sacrifice Yitzchak, the scriptures say, Abraham awoke early in the morning to do all that God had commanded. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't ask why. He woke early in the morning to take his son, his only son, whom he loved, and kill him. But Abraham stands alone, and that's why he's called the father of the faithful. Because most men are not like this. When God tells us to do something, our first question is not how or when or where. It's why. Why do you want me to do this? This doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand it. That's not required to obey. Why is the only question we ask and it's the only question that's not necessary to follow God's instructions. Why do we eat kosher? I have no idea. You know, I, there's many foods I've never tasted, but I'm told they're very tasty. So why did you make it tasty? If you don't want me to eat it, let me throw up if, if I, as I smell it. Most often, man's confusion is really not the result of his not understanding. It is the result of him trying to get around what God said to do. This is why very few people come to me for counseling 
Well, I'm confused. I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. Yeah, you do. You just don't want to. And you want me to give you the official okie-dokie, like that means anything. And we don't sell indulgences here. For instance, there were three tithes that are mentioned in the scriptures. The first tithe was for the temple upkeep and the Levites in Yerushalayim. Then there was a tithe that was given every three years, a tithe to cover the travel expenses to the pilgrimage feasts, the three feasts that Israel was supposed to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. The third one was tantamount to our Sadaka box in the back. It was for uh, charity, for the upkeep of widows, orphans, and Levites who are outside of Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 7, verses 10 through 11, Yeshua is dealing with the concept of korban. Korban is the general word in Hebrew used to describe an offering. And it, it doesn't it could be any of the offerings, peace offerings, wave offerings, meal offerings, meat offerings. The it doesn't describe a specific offering. Korban actually means to draw near. So the offering was drawing near to God, whatever that offering was. And Yeshua is, well, he's castigating those who are breaking the law of God by their traditions. He says, you, you dedicate the, this, your money to the temple as korban, as an offering, and yet you deny that money to help your parents who are in need at that time. And Yeshua here is not referring to the first or the third tithe, but the second tithe, because that tithe was redeemable you gave it to the temple, and they kept it for you. But then when it was time to make the, the trip, you could redeem that. And you could spend that tithe on anything that you wanted. Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 26. You could spend it on strong drink. You could spend it on bread. Anything that would make this trip more enjoyable, because God wanted the blessings to start on the journey, not just at the destination. And the person could redeem that korban, that offering that was given to the temple for this pilgrimage feast. And unscrupulous people saw this as an opportunity. By dedicating their money for the pilgrimage, they could avoid helping their parents when they needed the money. And Yeshua rebukes this harshly. He's not very happy. You are destroying the law through your traditions. They were lovers of self. They were lovers of money and found a way around showing love to their parents. Love was the first casualty of man's expulsion from the garden. Cain murders his brother Havel. And Lamech follows suit in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23. The hubris of Lamech is revealed for all to see. 
Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilla, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech 70 times the sevenfold. The heart of the conscience of Lamech was seared as by a hot iron. Not only did his actions not give him pause, he was proud of those murders. Watching man deteriorate saddened God, and he provided a way back. I'm going to review some of the things I mentioned here seven years ago when I was last here. After the fall, Adam was made B'Tselem B'Demut in the image and the likeness of God. Adam's third son, Shet, was created a little different. He was made B'Tselem B'Demut in the image and the likeness of Adam, one step removed. Shet holds a very special place in rabbinic theology. He is seen as a type or a shadow of Hagoel, the Redeemer, who would come. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Shet. For she said, God has appointed me another seed in place of Havel, for Cain killed him. Chava describes her son Shet as Zera Acher. It's not another seed. That's a poor translation. Shet was, is described by Chava, Eve, as other seed, not another seed. Different word. Shet had the potential to become the one who would fulfill God's promise to the serpent in the garden. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he will bruise your head and, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is very peculiar wording. In fact, it's nonsensical. The woman doesn't have seed. She carries the seed. The word zera is actually in, in Hebrew the word also for the male issue, sperm. Woman doesn't have zera, seed. She carries that seed. Many of my sages, not all, many believed that the woman's other seed would not come from a man, but from another place, a different place. That Shet or one of his descendants would carry a seed placed in her by God in a supernatural way and crush the head of the serpent. Many believed that the father of Mashiach would be God himself. Not through natural intercourse, but through the will of God himself. A miraculous impregnation vis-a-vis -vis a virgin. Yeshua refers to those who follow him in a similar fashion. 
Uh, John chapter 1 verse 10, the children of God are those who were born not of water and blood in a natural way, but by the will of God. Mashiach was born by the will of God and those who follow him are born by the will of God, not by natural means. I have a body that was born of a mother and a father, but I've been born again. More accurately, in the Greek, it is born from above. A supernatural impregnation, if you will, of God's presence within me. And as a believer, who do I have living on the inside of me with all the other stuff? The Father and the Son. In point of fact, we do see man turning back to God after the birth of Shet. In Genesis 4.26, the very next verse, Shet became the father of Enosh. And then the scriptures tell us, then man began to call upon the name of the Lord. Not all men, but a remnant of those who descended from Shet through Enosh. Yeshua describes himself throughout the New Covenant as the son of God and the son of man. And this relates back to Shet. Adam was born in the image of God, the son of God. Shet was born in the image of Adam, of man. The son of God was, as the son of God, Yeshua was the exact representation of God's presence. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He is light as was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration in Revelation chapter 1 verse 16 where he appears, his face appears as the sun shining in its brightness. As the son of man, Yeshua was born in the image and the likeness of Adam, man, even as Shet. And his glorious appearance was obscured. A man and men could look upon him, which was difficult when he was in his... Uh, heavenly state for lack of any better way to, to explain that. If it was hard for, if it was impossible for Israel to look upon Moses when he uh, came down from the mountain because his face shined, how much more the one whose light he was reflecting. And as with, Yish, with Enosh, after Yeshua, men once again began to call upon the name of God. The parallels are remarkable and quite obvious. In Hebrew, the word enosh means to be frail or feeble, weak, melancholy. And men in this diminished condition began to call upon the name of the Lord again, desiring to return to the presence that they remembered formerly, the presence of Adam. To return to the glory, the light of God's presence, the life that is the light of men, as, as John explains it in chapter 1, verse 4. Yeshua appeared as Enosh, frail, like a lamb he was led. He, he didn't offer up objection. He was silent. Isaiah 53. With the birth of Shet's son Enosh, the population of the earth began to precipitate, separating out into the sons of God and the sons of men. 
the sons of men increased. The daughters of men increased. And the sons of God found the daughters of men kind of purdy. And humanity fell. That takes place. Well, it's not angelic creatures who are copulating with human women. They can't. According to Yeshua, there is no giving and taking in marriage. You will be like the angels. They don't have the parts. They are not reproductive creatures. The sons of God are those who call upon the name of God. Angelic and human. So too with the birth of Yeshua. His, he was named by my people, Emmanuel. God is with us. In this one, God would once walk amongst us again. We would once again hear his voice walking on the wind of the day. John chapter 1, verse 14. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Allow me to bring this mountain of words down to earth. The word Satan means accuser. When Lucifer coveted the position of God, he fell. He became bitter. And it was at that point he became Hasatan, the accuser. He accused God of lying to man. And God said, if I eat this, I'll die. You will not die. But you will be like God. What she forgot is she was already like God. She was made in the image and likeness. The word kavod, which we translate glory or honor, comes from the root heavy. Kelalal, which means curse, comes from a root. It's, it's, it means lightness, being made light of. Satan showed no honor to God. He made light of God's words. We are subject to the same temptation. People covet property or status or the identity of another person and they become bitter. And that's when they become Hasatan, the accuser. And just like Satan, they seek to garner support. They go to others. And they try to get them to hate the same people they hate. And they tell tales. In Hebrew, the whispers of the gossips and the whispers of the, uh, of the maligners of others is the word for hissing, like a serpent. In the Hebrew, all of these things come together and you get the backstory. Just like the, the serpent hissed to Chava in the garden. He hisses through us too sometimes. Gossiping, maligning, 
and malicious maligning, maligning somebody's character with the purpose of bringing them down. Yeshua, he makes a tantamount to murder. But they represent the most prolific sins within the body of Messiah. Forget adultery. Forget murder, stealing. Singularly, the most prolific. I mean, we make fun of it a little bit. Well, we're the only army that eats its dead. We make a joke about it. It's not a joke. To quote Yochanan, little children, these things ought not to be. This behavior reveals a love that is growing cold. A destruction of the two greatest commandments. John is clear. How can you say you love God and not love those who are made in his image? We end up doing what is hateful to us, to others. To put it in the rabbinic verbiage, to put it in the new covenant, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Does any of us like that? Because most of us have been at the butt end of those accusations. And they hurt. The countenance, the face falls. The soul is ruptured. It's opened up. And the wind begins to escape, that holy wind. It injures. We are children of light. Walk in the light. Avoid those things that are done in darkness in secret. And you will reveal the face of God in this world. That's our job. Be the one who crushes the head of the serpent in your own life. Love deeply. Be quick to forgive. Be merciful to your brothers and sisters. And then you will learn what this means. I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. Father, thank you for this day. I thank you for the light that reveals all. And I pray, Lord God, that that light search us. Find any darkness and illuminate it. Turn us into the sons and daughters of light that you have created us to be, that we might reflect that image that you created us in. And all would see that image and give glory to our Father in heaven. In Yeshua's precious name. Amen.